I think when you're raising funds, it's more important to have a uh, clear, visually descriptive uh, thing to show investors rather than having it technically work. So story and visuals are way more important than actually building it <laughs> for, for some, in terms of raising funds. much for tuning into today's episode. I'm super excited to share today's guest with you. Not only has Talis helped over a dozen entrepreneurs in his career, he's taught a class at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's now launching his first book to actually help entrepreneurs. And in this episode, you're gonna get tangible takeaways all about actually how to raise a venture capital, how to understand your business's cash flow, and even simpler things on just how to build a team. So stay tuned, it's jam-packed with awesome information. I think you're really, really gonna enjoy it. So uh, here we go. Tell us, please, tell us where, uh, where'd you start, man? Yeah, um, so I started my first company in 2004. I was lucky enough to have um, my dad who was into entrepreneurship uh, from a young age and my adoptive uncle who's exited, I think, something absurd like half a billion or something in his ventures. So yeah, they really supported me and inspired me into getting into entrepreneurship. My first venture was Too Much Music and it was basically SoundCloud, but four years before SoundCloud was created. And we were just way too early and uh, I exited by selling to a competitor. And then I got into the corporate world, worked for a pharmaceutical company for a number of years, realized that I hated it, got my MBA, got involved with several other companies, was asked to teach at the University of Colorado where I had a great time teaching the capstone to the business minor. And um, yeah, recently wrote a book about my experiences. I've been with over a dozen startups in multiple different industries. Wow, that was... uh... That was maybe the biggest summary in the shortest amount of time that I've ever heard. <laughs> so to swing, let's rewind all the way back. Um, so I mean, I know we, we mentioned your, your first venture, it was a recording studio. Yep. How'd you sort of get into that space? Was that a passion of yours? And talk me through, I mean, I know you said that you sold there at the end because you were too early mm-hmm. sort of in that industry, yep. but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that story specifically. Well, uh, so let's go into the time machine, go back to the early 2000s slash late 90s when I came up with the concept. At that point in time, um, if you wanted to record some music, you'd have to go to a traditional recording studio. But right around the early 2000s, Logic Pro Studio came out making home recording a viable option. And if you combine that with the fact that the industry is moving away from WAV format to MP3, the degradation in the file um, quality uh, allows for digital downloads. Because if you're trying to send a WAV format on the internet based on the speeds back in the early 2000s, that wasn't feasible. So by, by switching to MP3, it really spurred uh, the ability to produce high quality music at home uh, for low budget. So what we're concept was is to produce a platform that allowed these artists to disseminate their content and give them a lion's share of the proceeds. Great. So like you said, it, it was a lot like what SoundCloud is now. Um, but but better, a, little bit a little bit better monetization, I think. <laughs> they're having issues with that. Yeah, they're having issues right now with it. 
Um, so, I mean, when, when you were running, since you just brought up monetization, how are you actually monetizing that business? So, um, I think that they could improve uh, the matching in Spotify. Uh, sorry, sorry, similar to Spotify and Pandora and those other uh, music uh, streaming services, they have a great way to find music that someone's probably going to like. Um, I think that if SoundCloud invests a little bit more into that, that would be uh, a big benefit for them. But yeah. who, who am I to say? They were successful in the industry that I was unsuccessful in. So, yeah, there you go. Right, that's that's too funny. Um, I'm curious. What what are your opinion on SoundCloud versus Spotify now? Do you think they should have worked more together? But it, it sounds like what you're saying is SoundCloud should have done a little bit more of that, helping people search for new music. Yeah, I mean the main problem is the revenue to the artist. If you think about how much money an artist is making per stream, it's fractional. And I was really looking at improving that ratio to get artists more money because, you know, the only way you're going to make money on, you know, the streaming services is if you have, you know, a gazillion downloads or sorry, streams rather. Um, however, if you go to more of a iTunes model where you actually sell the music, then you're able to ex extract more money for the artists. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a fan of streaming. I don't stream just because I think that the small artists don't benefit from it. And it's mainly just the big giant artists like Taylor Swift who really benefit from streaming. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and so, uh, you know, why did you decide to actually sell? Was there like one specific instance that happened or an outlook? How'd you get to that decision? Yeah, so what happened was uh, we were trying to raise funds to, because it's mainly, mainly a marketing play, right? We had the access to the talent and we had built the platform, but we needed a substantial amount of money to market this globally because, well, not just globally, but like, you know, nationally and then potentially globally. But, you know, that, those marketing dollars weren't there and I didn't think that it was worth really trying to bootstrap it because at that time, you know, there really wasn't Kickstarter or any of those other uh, things. And when I was talking to industry-specific industry investors, they were saying, oh, you know, people are always going to want a physical copy of their CD. They're paying so much money. They want a tangible asset. How are they going to play it in their car if they're just getting downloads <laughs> on the computer? They're going to green their computer with them on their car? You know, I've yeah. been getting all these, you know, types of responses. And um, it's really showed me that timing is really critical. You can have the an amazing idea, an amazing product, but if the market's not ready for it, then, you know, you got to shelf it or, you know, pivot something else. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, so this has happened to, to me in a past venture also, when you're talking about timing, how, I guess, in your experience, have you found the means to find timing? If that even makes sense, because in my mind, it's just, you got to go for it and see if people are ready. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's all about resources, right? If you have the resources to push something, I mean, look at Steve Jobs and, you know, the iPhone. I mean, that's probably the easiest example and probably most cliche example because, you know, they had a gazillion dollars to launch that. But that kind of goes to my point where if you have the money to launch a product, you can educate consumers and show them that they actually could benefit from this. But the key is, you know, finding the capital to get that venture going. And unfortunately, uh, raising capital if you're a first-time entrepreneur is almost impossible, um, at least for your first round of funds. You've got to go friends and family, 
And if you don't have a rich uncle, then it's, you know, it's a very tough uphill battle. Yeah, no doubt about it. I know actually in the the first time that we connected, uh, raising capital is one of the topics that we were talking about. Yep. So that's something that you've had a a pretty good amount of experience with. And I think a lot of, you know, people see it as a huge obstacle and challenge. It is, yeah. Any words of advice uh, to give on it? Uh, you know, raising capital is key. Valuation is key. You know, having a balance between uh, giving investors a return because of the risk that they're taking, and also making sure that there's enough equity in the team so that the team stays encouraged and continuing going. That's a very, you know, hard balance. And knowing what milestones that you're aiming for for the funds, because you know, you don't want to be stranded between milestones because then it's almost impossible to raise funds. The best scenario is you have defined milestones and defined deliverables and you're like, okay, I need this much money to get to this point at which then I can raise more funds or go to market. And having that figured out before raising capital is key. Actually defining those specific milestones. Yeah. Yeah, because, gotcha. you know, if you if investors are like, yeah, I like your concept, I'll give you, you know, a quarter mil and you're like, all right, cool. And then you don't spend that quarter mil necessarily like not focused enough, then you're not gonna, you may not get more money. Yeah, of course, because well, let me ask you this. At these milestones, are investors expecting to start to see a return? Maybe when you're hitting those either specific milestones or just goals along the journey? They want to see traction, and traction can be in the terms of uh, users, paid or unpaid. It could be in terms of people subscribing to your mailing list. It could be social mm-hmm. media followers. It could be you know product development milestones where you are able to move the overall project forward, maybe not have a lot of visibility, but you get a lot of internal traction. Uh, yeah, I mean, as long as you have something to show for your event, for your efforts and that that money is being well used because no investor is going to want to put in new money if their old money wasn't used properly. Yeah, of course. So they don't necessarily already need to see a monetary return on that investment. No. They're looking for distraction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, sometimes it takes companies several years to go through R&D before they have a product, especially if you're a hardware product or a deep science project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could take several years. I'm involved with one project right now where, um, you know, we finally got all of our patents globally and we were recently selected by NASA to be a 2019 NASA iTech company. We we're presenting oh, wow. at the space symposium and, uh, it's still difficult to raise funds because, um, you know, this type of project is, you know, a five to 10 year project. It's not a turnaround in two years where you get your money back. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm curious, I mean, since we were sort of talking about that traction, right? That's mm-hmm. what these investors want to see, at least in uh, in my mind for a long time, before you could even go get any investment or pitch an idea at all, you already had to have traction. Now, I know we briefly discussed it before our call, sort of just to know how you think it should be structured to pitch investors. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think you already actually have to have traction? You don't necessarily have to be launched, but a certain amount of interest. And then how do you actually present that to potential investors? That's a good question. It really depends on the company. If you're an app company, there's nothing stopping you from getting an MVP because that's just man hours, right? If you're a software-based company, then the only thing you really have to worry about is uh, coding hours. 
Uh, so that's a lot easier. If you're a hardware company and you have you know some capital expenditures that need to be taken care of prior to getting to your milestones, then you obviously have to raise that capital. Um, mm -hmm. It really depends on the type of company and whether just man hours can handle it, or whether there's things you have to buy that you know maybe cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that you might need. Gotcha. So it's just it's super case dependent. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, right. there's um, Techstars Accelerator. I mean, you don't have to go to an investor. You could go to an accelerator pr program that gives you 100K. Um, there's other accelerators and incubators that give time and resources as well. Um, I really think it's a case-by-case -case type uh, thing. Yeah. Is it? Would you actually recommend that to people to go towards an accelerator first before trying to get other funding? Uh, it really depends. Techstars is very competitive. Uh, oftentimes, to get into Techstars, you have to have a product ready to go, and then they just help you commercialize. So, uh, Techstars specifically is like that, where they're not really interested in helping R&D. They're more along the lines of, hey, you have this product, and you're having difficulty selling it. We'll help you, you know, get traction, get it sold in market. Gotcha, gotcha. So that incubator is really, if you already have your technology developed, business is maybe already a little bit profitable, they're trying to scale. Yeah, techstar spe specifically, like those guys are more along the lines of scaling. They're, that's what they're focused on. Um, here locally in, in Boulder, there's Boomtown, which is a little earlier stage where they even have an IoT lab where you can go in there and use their facilities, their 3D printers, their soldering stuff, and uh, you might not even have to give up any equity. I'm not sure what they're currently offering right now, but at least when I went through the program, we didn't have to give up any equity. Um, but yeah, there's tons of resources. I think that um, you know, just getting out there, talking to your local accelerator program and seeing what resources are available is important. I think that making sure that you're knowledgeable in the industry that you're getting into, like if you're going into software development, like an app company, you should probably know enough about software development where you can at least manage a team of developers, right? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And so do you think that that piece of the puzzle as far as your past knowledge, um, of course, team goes is huge into sort of telling the story around your startup, uh, but what all should be included in sort of that clear descriptive story when going out to look for funds? Uh, team is key. You know, you got to have the people who can execute. Um, so if uh, you go to an investor and they're like, what do you need? You're going to need capital, but you're also going to people in place to get that capital. So um, having a good team in place is critical. And that really is team, um, I'm sorry, venture specific because, you know, in some ventures, like for example, a medical device or a pharma drug, which I've been involved with both, you want a really good chief medical officer and you might not need someone in marketing business development because you're typically going to be selling that company before it goes to market because to take a, a drug through fda or even to take a novel medical device through fda is is pretty daunting and uh, so you don't really need to worry about sales or marketing or any of that stuff uh, now flip that on its head and you're doing an app and you're going to want a ton of marketing business development that type of stuff and you won't need the chief medical officer at all yeah of course so as long as you have the the correct team in place depending upon what your venture actually needs 
yeah. But I'd say every team, no matter what, needs a designer because everyone needs a good logo and a good website. <laughs> oh, yeah. And constantly you're going to be needing new marketing materials, um, yes. redesign the actual user interface, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, that's a great tip to make sure you focus on the designer. Um, well, ta- I mean, Tal, so we're already so deep, funny enough, into talking about a lot of different ventures that you've been in, right? And raising capital. I know you've mentioned a bunch of different startups you've already worked with. Um, I mean, after the first business, right? After the recording studio, you said you got into sales. When did you really start finding this niche? I did. I, never, I wasn't in sales. I was in pharmaceutical consulting. I didn't. I did uh, consulting. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Um, I was. I've never been a very good salesperson. <laughs> I tried that back in high school doing a, a horrible sales job that I really hated. But um, back back to the point. Um, Actually, I forgot. What was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just curious. I mean, so you've worked with over a dozen startups. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you went to pharmaceutical consulting. Uh, is that when you really started working with entrepreneurs in general? Was it just your whole life, you know, after, of course, your dad and your uncle sort of stemming off of them? Yeah, so I think after my MBA, that was when I really started helping people is because finance um, and in, in a good MBA program, you should get a really good understanding of finance. And I found that that's one thing that's really lacking in entrepreneurship. When I went through an accelerator program, uh, myself and one mentor from Goldman Sachs were the only two people who really understood finance. And that was including the program uh, program manager, the program director, all the other mentors, all the other people in the startups. Like, it was really shocking how little people knew about finance. And if you want to raise funds, you better know the difference between a capital expenditure and operating expenditure. And if you don't know how to create a cash flow statement where you go over EBITDA and everything, then you're really behind in terms of raising capital. And then I talk about that extensively in my book. So uh, if you'd like to check that out, um, I have a, two chapters, one about just a general investor strategy and then one about uh, actual uh, finance and putting together your cash flows and your valuations. Valuation is another thing. Um, I mean, Shark Tank is a good example about how people come to investors with unrealistic expectations on the value of their company. And um, it's important to be uh, realistic and not ask for a valuation that's unrealistic. Um, and you know, there's, there's science into doing evaluation, but at the end of the day, it's about what's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, one, one big thing I always think about is, I mean, look at the partner that you're bringing in, right? You need to think about what their value is uh, and kind of work that in. Right. That's a very good point. You know, there's smart money and there's dumb money. Um, smart money is someone who can add value beyond just capital. And then dumb money is just basically anyone who's just money and that's all. Um, it's, uh, it's important to bring in smart money, especially early, because you want advisors, you want people who have a stake in your company and want you to succeed and can give you really good advice. And sometimes that advice is hard to take, but it's important to, uh, to leverage their experience and uh, it's very beneficial. Yeah, it's interesting that you're saying it. So advice can be hard to take. 
right? Have you found that that is one of the, either the most important things in entrepreneurship or one of the things that stands most in the way of people not being able to take outside advice, uh, understand their weaknesses potentially? I agree. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that another thing to take into consideration is mentor whiplash. I didn't come up with that term. That was something that someone else did, but it's a very important concept where you may have two very capable, smart, um, highly successful business people or entrepreneurs that give you conflicting advice and you've got to make the best of it. And you just got to take into consideration that these people are just using their life experiences and trying to give you advice based on what's worked for them. And because every business is different and every situation is different and through the course of time, you know, situations change and how you should deal with them. Uh, you should take a wide range of advice and then kind of take them all with a grain of salt, distill them and try to come up with your own strategy based on everyone's feedback. Gotcha. And so that mentor whiplash is really the conflicting opinions. Mm -hmm. That's what yeah. happens. It causes you... There you go, whiplash. Exactly. I figured it out. <laughs> That's too funny. Okay, so pharmaceutical consulting, uh, was this specifically for startups or no, bigger businesses? Massive pharma companies. Um, however, it was, it was kind of ridiculous. Um, I remember the moment that I realized I was going to quit and go to grad school and go back into entrepreneurship. And that moment was, I was uh, taking a Six Sigma efficiency management course and uh, I was learning all about um, standard deviations and Sigma levels. And I were talking about this in the interview and I realized that the interviewer uh, was glazed over and had no idea what I was talking about. I'm gonna go get my MBA and do this myself because I can't deal with working for an idiot. Yeah, most definitely. And so you decided to switch to go back to school, right? Yeah, back to school, got my MBA, got back into entrepreneurship. Um, I, at that point, uh, helped my uncle with an oil company that he was then exiting. Then I got involved with uh, a hospice company, helped them launch it, uh, a couple medical devices, FinTech company uh, that my buddy from the World Bank started. And, uh, I advised on a dating app, I advised on a rideshare uh, play involved in CFO of a pharmaceutical drug that should be uh, going into second round animal trials in the next month or so. And
like imagine if you had more money at a thousand customers than you would at ten thousand. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so that seems pretty obvious,、um, right? You need to be making more money as you grow.、Mm-hmm. Obviously, when it comes to cash flow, you always need to be having coming in through as many revenue streams as possible. Yep.、Um, what What do you think they missed? How did they get into that situation? Uh, if I remember correctly, the they were giving a a higher percentage of the sales to their affiliates based on、uh, number of sales. So, like the more sales, the the more that the outfit would get.、Um, so, like let's say I had a. Vape pen company, and I wanted to sell them on this platform. If I sold less, the vape company would get less per sale. But if they sold more, they would get more per sale. And that really didn't make sense. It should be flipped. You should be making more per lower volume, and、uh, just because you know economies of scale. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep. I mean, if you're buying one widget, you're gonna. Pay more for that one widget than if you bought ten million widgets, then you'd be less per the marginal rate would be less, right? So they just had that inversed. Interesting. And they just what they inversed it one time accidentally, and、uh, no one just caught on. I have no idea whether they did it accidentally or whether it was just through incompetence. But、um, yeah, it, it, their numbers did not make any sense at all, and it's it was a. <laughs> It took more to explain it to them than I was anticipating, and、um, was, they actually gave me some pushback on it. And I'm like, math is math. It, like, yeah, look at the numbers. Yeah, of course. So、um, I'm not sure if this question is even going to make sense, but I mean, do you have any advice to give on? I mean, either just understanding your cash flow or making sure that you know you have positive cash flow, which that's why it seems so counterintuitive question. That of course you have to have positive cash flow. Understanding、uh, the difference between capital expenditures and operating expenditures is key. Just look at Amazon. Amazon、yeah. was making money, and instead of making, so the way I have to back up a little bit. So you have your revenue, and then you deduct your operating expenditures. And then you have your EBITDA. Once you have your EBITDA, then you you subtract your capital expenditures, and then you have your profit, right? And then after profit, then that's what is taxed, right? Of course. So, what Amazon was doing was at the EBITDA level. So prior to deducting capital expenditures, they figured out if they could maximize their capital expenditures to have no profit, they would be not taxed. And those capital expenditures ended up being AWS, Amazon Web Services. Yeah. So they bought servers, and so they never really had to pay any tax on anything、uh-huh. because they just reinvested,、uh, maxed out on their capital expenditures essentially. So understanding so, the difference between the two is important. Yeah, ex- extremely. So this is this is pretty interesting. So you're talking about essentially、uh, at the beginning of 2019. Huge thing came out, right? That Amazon wasn't paying any taxes, right? Everybody、mm-hmm. thought it was this huge scam, huge scheme.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so, what you were saying is essentially they just figured out that by increasing their capital expenditures,、uh, 
um, then they essentially weren't going to be taxed on me because there was going to be quote unquote no, no profit. profit. Exactly. Yep. Nice. So is that something that you would actually recommend to other businesses to do themselves? If you're producing a steady revenue stream and you don't and you don't want to pay taxes, then yeah, invest in capital expenditures, uh, whether it's like uh, a building or property or something that is a tangible asset that you can depreciate over time. Uh, that is a very good accounting trick to, to look at. In fact, um, you know, it's such a big issue. That's the reason why almost no big giant company pays any sort of taxes. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of working on a policy proposal where we switch it from taxing profits to taxing EBITDA because mm. One of the things that's happening is automation. And if you're able to use like Amazon, uh, that the delta between your operating expenditures and your profit and maximizing that capital expenditures and putting robots that then does the fulfillment for you, does all the warehouse work for you, then you don't have to pay for employees. And so it's basically helping them reduce their operating expenditures even more than they wow. would it, it's i don't like the idea of profits being taxed i think uh, ebitda should be taxed personally but that's just me i mean when you put it that way it makes so much sense because it's essentially then a almost a never-ending loop of this loophole that's allowing you to almost grow your company more and thus not be taxed for it yeah yeah. The other thing that I think we should get rid of is payroll tax because it's very onerous on uh, startups. Every every startup, if they're smart, they hire all their employees through a as a contractor and do a uh, that type of relationship rather than a W two or W four. You do a ten ninety nine. And the other thing about payroll taxes is you're incentivizing companies to automate rather than hiring someone. Like if yeah. you think about. Andrew Yang and him, him talking about automation being the what's going to be happening in the next 20 years or so. I don't think payroll taxes is a way to prevent that from happening. It's, it's almost a accelerator to that type of uh, activity. Yeah, it, it sounds like a very outdated model to me. Mm -hmm. And before automation was a threat or you know, lack of a better word, well, I'm going to say a threat, um, payroll tax made sense seems that now uh the world's changed yeah i mean automation is going to be coming for a lot of jobs i think the economist is saying nearly 50 percent of jobs have the potential to be automated in the next 50 years so time will tell huh yeah yeah i mean something needs to change and so you said that's actually a policy that you're busy working on yeah i have something on my website talking about it i also have a couple other things uh I'm a proponent of a UBI system, especially for entrepreneurs. If you think about the money that uh, would have gone to capital in terms of like investor capital, if the government were to basically create their own venture fund and convert the money that they were giving away free on grants and exchange, for then they'd be able to have a giant fund and then that would pay for a UBI system. Uh, a UBI system? Universal basic income. Universal basic income. Nice. So is that another policy, I guess, that 
for that specific mindset or that idea is that what Andrew Yang also was talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he understands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar. I've actually had way, way too many people just reach out to me just asking my opinion on Andrew Yang. Uh, and so I had to like start educating myself because that's everybody's just like, yeah, he's all entrepreneurs just loving him so much. Right? Yeah, just think about it. I mean, like how many more people would be able to start a startup if they were getting an extra thousand bucks a month and they, re they remove that, the opportunity cost, they're able to have their basic needs met and they could add value to society. I think it's a no brainer. I mean, I don't have any, any arguments <laughs> against that right there. That's sounding pretty good to me. Um, cool. So it's just following along literally your story here, right? I guess, next step i mean after you were consulting for all of these oil companies and hospice and fintech um so much stuff you said that you were a teacher at the university of colorado for a while yeah i just i taught one class um i had a great experience i wouldn't do it again uh just because there's you know i i enjoy my freedom too much it's uh, uh, there's too many administrative bureaucratic things that I just am not, I don't enjoy. So yeah, that's why I wrote the book is because Perfect. I figure if kids aren't going to have the opportunity to take my class, at least they can uh, mm -hmm. read my book. I use a lot of the, the premises from my class in the book as well. So it's, it's pretty good. Uh, definitely pick it up. Nice. I mean, so since you just mentioned, uh, mentioned again, so it's called Savvy Entrepreneur's Business Handbook. Yes, sir. Where, where's the best place for people to pick it up? So you can pick it up uh, on pretty much every platform ebooks are sold uh, Amazon, Lulu, Apple, Kindle. Uh, well, I guess that would be Amazon. What's the other one? Nook? Yeah. Uh, Nook, yep. Yeah, all of them. Uh, I'm doing the print version. Uh, that should be released in the next two or three months where uh, the formatting, I wanted it to be perfect. So I'm making sure that it's not an MVP that's actually ready to go which is different right because when you're an entrepreneurship yeah. you're like yeah it's good enough publish it and that's why i do uh -huh. an ebook because the content in the book's not changing that's the same but the polished finish of the outside people really do judge books by their cover so yeah they definitely do so that's what you're waiting before you actually get the hard cover or the physical version out absolutely yeah mm-hmm Nice. So here, yeah, you can always uh, update a cover picture on a digital version. <laughs> that was my thoughts exactly. That's too funny. That's too funny. So uh, it's interesting to hear you say, right, that at the university, right, you just didn't, I don't know, there, the fit wasn't there. Too much politics, bureaucracy, whatever it was. Um, you know, the online teaching space is becoming so much bigger, right? Every mm -hmm. single day I hear about a new program or Tony Robbins and uh, Dean Graziosi released a whole big education on teaching you how to teach online. Mm -hmm. Is that an industry that you've thought about getting into or just what's your opinion on it in general? You know, I, I've used Udemy classes for learning how to uh, do basic development and I, I don't do development myself. I use that as a tool to help me be a better manager of development. So I do enjoy online classes. I have thought about doing my own. Um, however, 
I just don't have the time. I'm positioning two of my ventures for exit. So once that happens, I will have a little bit more time and I have, you know, seriously considered it. Have you done uh, any online type classes? Yeah. And I mean, I'm very, very pro. Um, I actually, <laughs> I'm not saying I am a pro. I'm saying I'm very pro learning online. <laughs> uh, so my, uh, my background was in just communications and public relations, um, um, a lot of on the business side, but then I switched to marketing entirely through online learning. Um, really, I mean, I took a bunch of Udemy classes. I found a couple private classes as well. Um, and so that's kind of steered my entire journey up until this point. And so I, I love the idea. The only fear in my mind is people who aren't qualified starting to teach classes and yeah. uh, people not knowing how to vet the different courses. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, that's the same problem people have with those uh, crowdsourced, not crowdsourced, uh, freelance websites. Like you could, let's say you need a designer, you need a CTO or something, you go to a freelance website. Like it's very difficult to understand what ca what caliber of person you're gonna be getting. I guess it'd be the same issue with the online courses as well. Yeah, have you hired people through either, you know, Upwork, Freelancer, Fiverr, all of those different spots? I have not. I've, uh, I pride myself on networking well, and I've pretty much found everyone who's helped me with my ventures through uh, some sort of social interaction or through recommendations. I've, mm -hmm. I've been able to really, or just reaching out to them directly. Like for example, for this, uh, for the NASA related company, we were reading a scholarly paper and there was this particular scientist who was cited frequently in these papers. And so we're like, all right, let's just reach out to him. And we just onboarded him onto the team. So this guy is like a world-renowned researcher, teaches at Caltech and researches at MIT. Uh, wow. So just by reaching out to him and showing him our vision, uh, we were able to bring him on. So if you, if you find you know, someone who you think is a rock star and you really want them on, to be on your team, it wouldn't hurt to reach out sometimes you know they'll be they'll be you know jiving with what you're saying and would like mm -hmm. to join what you're doing i like it and then as far as that outreach is concerned what uh what was your process like did you just find their phone number and call them up how'd you do it pretty much yeah well their email uh i yeah. found their email uh university email and uh, sent a message and he responded within like an hour and we, we set up a call for later that week and had a several introductory calls and I just chatted with him an hour uh, before this and we came up with some really groundbreaking stuff that I can't talk about because we're in the process of patenting but um, yeah some really cool stuff stay tuned yeah stay tuned Nice. I like it. But the reason why I ask is because, you know, uh, my background being in public relations, people are at, all the time asking me about outreach. Um, and people, a lot of times, they overcomplicate it just because now, especially with all these social platforms, you can reach out through those socials or you could email them or you could call them or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds I'd, like the simplest advice. Yeah, I'd, re I'd recommend email or phone. Uh, for some reason, I think that there's some sort of stigma to dropping in someone's dms which isn't as mm -hmm. formal as going into the email box so yeah. 
I'd recommend trying to find the email. Yeah. See, I, funny enough, uh, my opinion is formality wise, I like email. However, sometimes you can get lost in an email inbox pretty easily. Yep, it's true. Whereas if you look at LinkedIn per se, which I'm super heavy on LinkedIn, um, I actually tell a lot of people to try outreach originally through LinkedIn, either just before or at the same time as email. Um, it's way less crowded. You, know, you can see open point. rates a lot higher. Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. That's a good point. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, I'll tell a quick funny story. I actually have a friend who's in a big financial real estate up in uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, he's looking at, at switching job positions. And I asked him, I was like, well, you know, who's your ideal company that you would want to work for? Go find their CEO or someone in HR on LinkedIn and reach out to him. Uh, next, the next week, he found himself sitting in the CEO's office, in like a big penthouse, just massive. I don't know what the message was that he sent him, but just cold outreach through LinkedIn, got invited to uh, to come to the company and just come chat. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it, yeah. gumption, right? It's all about that stick-to-itiveness and gumption. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, Tell us to me. So we've we've touched on a lot. I mean, this is your story. This is how you've helped so many entrepreneurs and businesses uh, throughout your career already. If there was uh, one big takeaway that you want, you know, either people who are just starting their first venture, maybe they're already deep into it. Was what do you want them to take away? Um, Pro- product market fit. That is the most important thing outside of finance because you could have the best product in the world. But if no one else is going to buy it, then it's really not worth anything at all. And a lot of times people over-engineer things. I'll give you an example from BossyFit. Uh, with BossyFit, we are a uh, hardware device and software platform that uh, looks at performance of the body for athletic purposes, working out, and that type of thing. So we did a very extensive five-point sens- sensor system on the body, on um, above and below each joint that we're looking at measuring and on the torso and blah, 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 blah. But it turned out that if you just put a single sensor on the piece of equipment that you're working on, it's a lot easier for the person to consume. They don't have to worry about putting on a bodysuit. <laughs> you don't have to worry about washing a garment. It just clips onto whatever piece of equipment is and uh, it actually gets better data. So I highly recommend that anyone who's got a product Think about the use case, understand is someone going to go through the process of using this and if you can simplify the process at all, do so and really talking to your customers, understanding what their pain points are and how you can achieve that goal for them as simply as possible. As simply as possible. And so um, the biggest piece that stood out there, well, it's, it's funny that you guys created such like an advanced piece of tech. And you just needed to simplify it so much, right? To get yep. much better results. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as actually talking to your potential customers, mm-hmm. right? Almost assessing the market. Um, what have you found to be most effective in sort of achieving that? Uh, yeah, it's really important for BossyFit. Uh, we had to talk to trainers and we had to talk to physical therapists, orthopedic surgeons, all sorts of people who are involved, kinesiologists, people who are involved in that uh, whole industry. Uh, because we had to decide whether we were going to be a physical therapy product or a consumer product. 
and um, you know, just talking to as many potential stakeholders as possible and understanding what each individual stakeholder's pain points are and kind of mapping that out. Uh, it helped us identify social media fitness influencers as our easiest target audience. So what BosiFit basically does is it helps a fitness influencer who has you know, 50, 100,000, 250,000 followers easily uh, deliver digital content to as many people as they want, tens of thousands of people, just for the same amount of effort that it would take to do one person's workout profile or workout program. Oh, wow. So we identified, you know, just through talking to a whole lot of different stakeholders in that industry, we identified those influencers to be the lowest hanging fruit for us because they already have millions of people following them who want their workout mm-hmm. content. And prior to BossyFit, the only thing that they could do was record a video and video isn't the best thing to work out with because when you're in the gym and you're trying to lift weights while watching video, I think that's dangerous. And, oh, yeah, definitely. and then... The other thing being, you know, uh, spreadsheets that they could disseminate. So neither one of those are very effective. So we just found a market inefficiency and we put ourselves in between them. And that's what I recommend other people do is do your research, identify your market segment, talk to your stakeholders and figure out who is the most apt to buy your product. I like it. That's, I like the story, especially because in the beginning you were thinking, are we going physical therapists? Um, are we going more everyday consumers? You almost landed in the middle there, right? Uh, the actual influencers in the fitness space. Yeah, and what's funny is that we might get bought by someone in the medical space uh, in the next uh, six months or so, depending on how launch goes. So yeah, we're really excited about that. Nice, well, congrats. I hope it happens. Uh, well, thanks. Have to stay tuned. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Uh, Taos, thanks so, so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, I myself got a lot out of this. If you could even just see my notes. It's <laughs> wild over here. Uh, and so I'm sure everybody else did too. And so once again, just thanks so much. Uh, if there's one place, I mean, you want people to either get your book, follow you, um, what's the final thing to leave them with? Yeah, so you can check out my website, talis.co, T-A-L-L-I-S.co. I've got free resources for entrepreneurs. I've got a sample pitch deck, uh, sample cash flows, sample executive summary that uh, feel free to use. Uh, my book is also available on my website. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, respond on social media if you want to find my book on twitter send me a tweet and if you have a simple question i'd be happy to see what i can do to help love it i'll definitely link down to your website to your twitter also below uh so everybody has easy access to you and once again thanks so much man i really appreciate it thanks Wayne. It's great chatting with you great chatting with you. all right bye all right bye. nice man that was good <laughs>